Welcome to Careers and Mental Health Conversations. This is the podcast where we discuss career counselling, career guidance, mental health awareness and mental health training in the workplace. With your hosts, Patrick, Sally, Tina and Amy. Good morning, Chris, and welcome to the Career Development Podcast. Thank you for coming in and speaking to us today. Our topic today is the rapid change in the workforce within Australia. As a leadership coach, Chris, I'd like you to share some of the things that you're noticing that are changing within the leadership and the work world space. So can I ask you, tell me a little bit about what you're seeing. I think the first thing that I notice is the younger generation now looking for immediacy. And by that I mean they're looking for something quick that will give them um, an excitement. It's that spontaneous world that they live in on their, on their phones, on their laptops and whatever, the, whatever else media they're using now. It's much more immediate than what it used to be. So back when I started my first job, I'd send off a letter, I'd wait for a response. You know, they, these guys these days send an email and they expect a response to the afternoon to say whether or not they've got an interview. So there's a lot more immediacy about what they're doing. They're in a hurry. They don't like waiting, but they also, um, they're very quick with response. And I don't know that we get the in-depth, they don't give us a chance to get to know who they are when they're putting their applications forward. And I think sometimes they're not sure who they are, particularly the younger generations and even the ones that are in their late 20s. They just haven't spent time getting to know who they are to become their authentic self, if we call it that. So they understand what sort of work they're looking for. So there's, a, you know, there's a, the rush of getting into work, getting a job, getting some money, getting a car, getting a new phone. You know, it's got the most number of pixels on their camera, all those. They're the important things in their lives these days, as opposed to perhaps when you and I were young, we were saying, right, I'll save my money, I'll get a house, I'll get some security. They're, they're in a rush. They've got to get things done quickly. So I guess the, the thing that I've noticed, and you know, having run a business, it doesn't matter where they come from. Once you get them in... The thing they're looking for is to feel valued and they need to be told that they're valued. If we don't start doing that, then they're, they're, off. they're off to somewhere else. They're looking for the quick fix. Uh, but what I've done in my past as an, as an employer, not so much as a coach, but as an employer operating with young ones and with older ones, if I wanted to say that I valued somebody who was in their 50s, I'd buy them flowers and give them a box of chocolates. The young ones, all I need to do is text them and say, great job today, GR8. And I send that through on text and they, they would love it because I was communicating with them. So it's a very different world. Uh, and as an employer of these young people, you just, you've just got to do little things regularly as opposed to big things less often that you might have to do with some, some of the senior people. So I think that's the thing I've noticed is that once you've got an employee, it's okay because you value, if you can show the value, they are loyal to you. But it's that they need a quick fix. And that's what's changed and what I've noticed. You know, the old days, somebody was happy to do an apprenticeship and spend several years as a carpenter and electrician, those sorts of trades. Uh, now, if they're not happy within three months, they're going, no, I can't do this, I'm on, I'm on to something else. There's not that persistence that we, we might have expected from somebody a bit older. So, Chris, that's interesting, and, and I've noticed that myself. But do you think that is a positive or a negative thing? What do you think is the good and what do you think could be altered within that? model of a quick fix? Look, I wouldn't say it's good or bad. It's just the reality of the world we live in. You know, these young adolescents these days, there's so much pressure on them in our society to get out and do things. Um, so I wouldn't say it's good or bad, Sal, but I would say that they need to understand what... They need some help to find out what they're looking for. Uh, you know, go to school, you either 
go to university or get into an ASPA and you know, start a trade at a young age, well, there's nothing wrong with taking time out to go, you know what, I'm going to travel. And I, I've, I've got four children. I've encouraged all of them to do that and to find their own path. You know, it's, it's not a matter, I expect to go to uni, I expect to get an education. I want them to be happy people. And to be happy people, they need to follow their own path. And it's not for me to say what the, the pathway is for my children, but where I need to be there to support them so if their chosen pathway doesn't work, they can fall back and they know they've got a home and security and they feel loved and valued because they're a member of my family. So that's the important thing that I think we can provide them with, to give them the freedom to explore. So that's the world they live in. They get on, they, they get on Google Maps to find where they're going. They get on Google to see what jobs are out there. They, that's the way they live now. So they've, they've grown up learning how to explore. And I think we don't encourage them enough to explore where they're at in life, whether that be in relationships, whether it be in travel, whether it be where they live, what part of the world. That exploration part is such a good um, journey that they should be taking to find out who they are and give them time to do that. Like, there's no rush. I was, I was running around a track until I was 30 because I loved athletics. And then I started to think, what's my career? So, you know, my, or each of my children is well advanced compared to what I was at the same age. But they're doing different things. My 25-year-old, 26-year-old daughter's probably had four different jobs already. Uh, and if she, you know, she went into the public service, absolutely bored. After three months, you know, it could have been a career for her. She went, Dad, I cannot do this. I feel braided. I'm not being challenged. So she chose to move on and do something different. Yeah, and we know that um, the, the kids that are in high school now are probably going to have seven careers and that is about exploring. And we are also aware that the key skills that um, a 2030 worker will need is resilience, emotional intelligence, strong communication skills. Yet there's a conflict there that I believe our schools are still carving two pathways. One, you go to uni and we know the stats of about 40% don't get jobs. Two, you go down an apprentice path. How do we explore and educate our teachers and parents that it's okay for kids to build their skill set in a variety of ways? Because we're still still teaching it the way it was when we were at school and it's not that way. So there's a big conflict. Talk to me about that. I think you're spot on, Sally. It's, it's not so much what's going on in the classrooms right now that we need to change. Well, we do, but it's not, that's not the immediacy. The immediacy is what's happening in the universities for the people who are educating the teachers. There's a massive role to be played in providing a better grounded education for the teachers who are going to be dealing with the next generations. Uh, they need to understand that the education system isn't what it was 100 years ago. I, I did a talk to the Australian Independent Schools recently and or the Association of Independent Schools, sorry. And the thing I put up, I put up a slide that was taken in a classroom in 1905. And then I put the one that was taken up in 2005. The only difference was instead of a blackboard, it was a whiteboard. The children were sitting around the same desk looking at the teacher sitting out the front. I know we can do education better than that. And we should be doing that with the young ones. But in order to get that change, it's not about going to the teachers that are already out there educating. That's part of it. They need upskilling. But it's the ones that are coming into the education system that are at university right now. And it's the teachers of those children, uh, those adolescents and those uh, to-be teachers that we need to educate. Say, guys, let's think about the way you're educating. There's a different way of learning. Now, some people do it better than others. But you're right. Education is so old school. It hasn't evolved to the extent that society has. It's such a different evolution that we're... Ta- you know, I would expect soon that children won't learn to read and write. 
they'll be typing into iPads. So they'll use, you know, they won't even have phones that they'll carry. They'll have a watch that gives them all the messages. We're already seeing that. People just looking at their watch to see what emails they're getting. So it's a very, very changing and dynamic world. But I don't, I don't believe we're doing the right thing by our students in education as yet. So I do agree. I think we need to look at what's going on with the trainers of the educators. So if you were put in charge of this job and asked to recommend changes within our education, within our thoughts about careers, where would you start? And what model would you see as being a positive model? The model would depend on what came out of the first group of people you spoke to. And I would have 20, 30, 40 of the most dynamic 18 to 20-year-olds there are because they are creative. They think outside the box. They're good. If they're, if they're provided with the right environment to think outside the box and show them what to look for, I think let's start with them. They're the ones we're going to target in the education. So why don't we sit them around the table and say, what do you need? What are you looking for? What do you want in education? And then we can shape the model from that. So I wouldn't be too prescriptive and say, that's what it's got to look like. What do you think of this? Go to them with a blank piece of paper and say, what does this look like? And that's a perfect answer, and that's what we're not doing. I think that we're not asking people what it is they want, what, what do they see their future, how do they see their future. And so I get clients coming in. I have a lot of 17-year-old clients, and they are still programmed to think that uni is the other way, only way. When you challenge that, they get quite excited and they become creative. So I guess my concern is that how do we get parents to go, relax, it's okay, let them explore. It's not the end of the world if they work at McDonald's, go to uni, go and do some things that are different. Parents still struggling with how to help their kids through that process. I think we've got to remember that parents have grown up in the image society. Got to have the car. You know, everybody wanted... We look at Australian society back in the 60s. Everybody wanted to have a house and the goal was from government. People should be able to buy a home. Back then they wanted a home that had three bedrooms, one bathroom... And a carport. Now the house has got to have four bedrooms, two bathrooms, and a double garage. The cost of simple things like that and the expectations of the younger generations and what they want to move into is is so beyond the reality these days with prices that there is an un, unwarranted pressure on these young people to go and perform and get your house. What is wrong with saying to these kids? You know, I really appreciate the indigenous communities. Because in an Indigenous community, people all live together. So you've got three-year-olds through to 83-year-olds living in the same house at the same time. So the, the younger generation was learning skills from the older generation. And we don't do that anymore. Oh, you're a bit old and you're a bit in the way. Let's go and put you into a home. Well, that's being negligent to the, the upcare and, and the welfare of our children that are, should be brought up with that experience and know that wherever they are, they have a safe spot to come to to give them that freedom and spoke to before to go and explore the world. Get a part-time job, whatever it might be. You know, there are, there are organisations that do a fantastic job of training young people and giving them confidence. There's nothing better than getting a job and turning up with a uniform on your back. Uh, it's a wonderful experience. So I, th- I really think we've got to have a look at just the expectations that we're putting on our young people. I do a lot of work in the Pacific Islands, and some of those islanders are the most beautiful, happy people you'd ever want to meet. But they've got nothing other than the clothes they walk around in, they wash them at night, wear them again the next day, because that's all they have. But they're happy. They don't know any different. 
here it's getting caught up in this image of got to have the hair, got to have the makeup. These days for the young ones, it's haven't you got a tattoo? You know, why do they need to have a tattoo? If you don't want a tattoo, don't get one. But there's this pressure from sports people, the, the, the images that they're expected to look like, you know, from the media. Uh, what's wrong with being a couple of kilos overweight and just being happy and going and doing a part-time job? You've got to look a certain look. You, you know, they, they Photoshop the models even, the, the slim models. They make them even slimmer and remove blemishes. It's just so much bullshit in our society. What The pressures that we are subliminally putting on our young people, it's just so wrong. It's so far beyond what we should be doing, and that is teaching them to be comfortable with who they are and to find the pathway that suits them, not what suits their parents, not what suits their brother or sister, but their journey is the important one they need to take. And, and unfortunately, they don't understand that yet. They don't know what they don't know, and they see this materialistic world and they see their mates with a brand-new car and then they want that or the best iPhone. This is the part of education the link that I think is missing, and you mentioned the word before, authenticity. They don't know this because they don't know it yet. How do parents help their kids learn that part of it? Well, you've got to remember the parents haven't been taught that either. So again, go back to who's teaching the teachers because this should be taught in schools, how to become authentic. What is authenticity? What really matters in the big picture? You know, I've spoken to young ones many, many times, and the people that love you, they don't care what car you drive, what house you live in, what clothes you wear, what colour your hair. They care what sort of person you are. So we must start getting these people to understand who they are. And that takes time. You don't expect a child to finish, and they are children when they finish school, 17, 18-year-olds. How can you expect them to know who they are when that's still part of the, the development period for morals and ethics? And they're, you know, they're being surrounded by their peers and it's a bit of luck sometimes. You get in with the right group of people, you can end up with great morals and become a great community member. End up with the wrong group, you can be heading towards jail and dealing ice and all those sorts of things. So there's a little bit of luck nowadays in who our children associate with and that takes good parenting to manage them through that process to help them make good choices. But if you can reinforce to them that they're responsible, a great saying I use with athletes you know, in a form of different coaching life was to say you are free to make whatever choice you want but you are never free of the consequence. So if you choose not to train, then the consequence is you won't be the best athlete you can be. And similarly with children to say, you can choose not to go to work, but the reality is you can't buy the things you want to have. So every choice there is a consequence for, and getting the young ones to own that choice, getting them to take ownership and say, yeah, I did that because of X, Y, Z. Instead of blaming other people for their spot in life, we need to teach them to be really comfortable with who they are and it's okay to say, no, I don't want to go for a work job or a job. I want to go travelling. Or I'm going to get a part-time job, have a couple of years of gap year, and then go back to uni. There's no big deal. And they know the stats. They know that 40%, as you mentioned, don't get a job. So they can do all the study, end up nowhere. And they look at their mates that have been tradies or whatever, and they'll go, oh, they've now got a car and a deposit on a house. Maybe what, what was this education all about? So are we really teaching the kids the skills they should be doing or needing to go on to you know, a, a path in whatever career they, they choose? Sure, you need that if you're a doctor, a physio. There are career, yes, we, we must have those things. I'm not saying don't do it, but you must have those education courses. And some people are very clear, I want to be a doctor, and they know that from the time they're 14. Their career path is set. But there are so many more that don't even have a clue what they want to do. And I don't know that, that we're giving them enough space to explore that. Yeah, and, and we've got um, robots coming through, robotics coming through. So the jobs that some of our young ones are being trained for now 
won't exist in 10 years. So what is the skill set that's within there that's going to help them have to change, have to relearn, have to go for another job because they've been made redundant? What What is it that we need to teach them to be able to work through that with a positive attitude, not, oh, I've lost my job, the stupid company, okay, I've, I've lost that job, what is my next chapter? What What is it that we need to do to be able to coach him through this and see the positives in it? Yeah, it's a true question. I think what we need to teach them is to be patient. They don't have to be in a rush and that it's okay to, to spend time looking at options. So if we can teach them resilience, then resilience comes from just taking your time you know, and considering the options. So it's not just about and, and there's the, like resilience is one of those words that everybody's throwing around at the moment. But what is actual resilience? Resilience, to me, is just the ability to say, well, that's where I'm at right now. How do I move it forward? How do I move forward from where I am right now? And if you can cope and understand the situation instead of getting caught up and spiralling backwards because, oh, look at this, the last the history of my employment for the last six months has been boom, 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 and I'm going backwards, it could be that you're creating that own environment in your head to say, oh, I'm, I'm never going to get this job. You turn up to a job expecting not to get it, you're not going to get it. But if you can get people to think, oh, well, this is my next opportunity, I better embrace it and let's go for it. So forward projecting and considering that's where I'm at right now, but that's where I want to be, so that they can look towards you know, setting. Goal setting is okay, but I'm not a big fan of it. It's about understanding the process, and the process is what's so important. So here's what's happened. How do I move that forward? Whether You can get knocked off a bike and get injured. Then you go, right, okay, what am I dealing with? What are the injuries? Let's get them healed so I can get back to work. You can get knocked back at a job. You go, okay, try and understand why you might not have got the job. could be that somebody's better skilled and better prepared for you than you. So that's okay. You had a crack. What did you learn from that? And what can we do to move you forward now? So you build on your experiences instead of worrying about what's been. You can't change what's been. It's a given. But let's consider where you're at and what have you learned from those experiences to build you as a better person. So I'm hoping that um, people changing jobs are listening because one of the things I see interviewing people for a particular position is that they haven't even researched the company values, the company. They come to interview and it's often about them. I guess, what would you tell somebody going for an interview? What three tips would you give to somebody who is really wants that job and is going to an interview? I'm not. I'm not a huge um, fan of them having to know a lot about the company. I think it's more important they know a lot about themselves. So somehow in that interview. You know, the, the question is, is there anything else you'd like to ask? Yes. And the question might be, what would you like to know about me? So we've just talked about the job skill set. But if I'm an employer and I you know, had a lot of staff, I want to know what sort of person I'm employing. Uh, I worked in the child um, swimming industry. So if I'm about to put someone's child, most precious thing in the world to parents, in the water with someone, which is a dangerous environment, we lose children every week around Australia through drownings. So if I'm going to have people that are going to be caring for other people's children, I need to know what sort of person they are, that they are going to give the due diligence and care. I really don't care what your education is. I really don't care what you want to do away from all that. But if you can care for these children in the water, you are like gold to me. So I need to understand what sort of person you are as you sit down at the interview table. 
So maybe one of the good questions that the young ones can ask is, what would you like to know about me as a person? Because that can turn from, you know, instead of saying, oh, are you good at accounting? Because we need an accountant. But if that person can't interact with this other staff, if that person has, plays the blame game, it's going to be counterproductive to your whole work environment. So we should be spending more time getting to know the people that are coming into our workplace. And often you'll see employers, I mean, there's people making millions of dollars out there going into workplaces to get people to understand what they're like. They've been in the workplace for 15 years and somebody says, oh, we should find out how we work together. Well, surely that should be happening as people enter the workforce, not when they're halfway through it and there's stress and bloody people taking time off because they can't cope. Let's find out why they're not coping by understanding who they are and where their pressure points are. Somebody, I know you're a very busy woman, but you cope well. You like that exciting, busy environment when you're challenged. There's energy around you when you're busy. I'm the same. But there are other people that need time to stop, pause, reflect, incredibly diligent in what they do about their job, but you need to leave them alone and get on with the job. So by understanding each other's workspace, really important to get the best outcome for the individual and ultimately you get a better outcome for the workplace. So I, I, I think we need to look carefully at what, what questions are being asked during the interview process because I certainly want to know who I'm dealing with. More importantly, than what skills I've got. You can teach people skills. That's a really interesting point. You can teach people skills. So I guess my next question is, what advice would you give to employers? What questions do you think that would help in employing not just on a set of technical skills, because we can teach them, but employers, how do they get to understand that? Because not a lot... An, an interview, you don't go and learn how to interview. It's just a very natural process and you're a person that's interested in people, so am I. But some of our people that are thrown in, you go and interview this this person, they don't know what questions to ask. They don't know how to layer it. I think there's a lot around interviewing, Sal, that, that the interview uh, panels don't quite get. So you and I would sit in a room and watch the global, we would global listen. And by that, you know, for those who are not sure what global listening is, that's reading people's body language, the, the tonality of their voice, you know, the posture, all those little things that you and I are trained to pick up on and now do it naturally. We would go in an interview and go, there's just something not quite right there. And through coaching, you could explore that. But you don't have time to do that in an interview, but you can pick up where people are uncomfortable. You can pick up different, you know, the, the, the way they answer questions in terms of whether they have a process person or whether they are, you know, more interested in what's happening with the, the, the workforce for other people in the workplace or whether it's, you know, what's the big strategy. The questions they ask, the way they respond can teach you so much about people. I don't see that a lot of our employers have got that knowledge and understanding of the individual to get the best out of the interview process. Um, so I, I would spend more time teaching people how to interview not how to sit for the interview, but how to actually conduct a good interview that will give you the information you're looking to, to you know, ultimately employ a, an, employee, a, an employee who's going to make a contribution to the whole workforce. I'll use the sporting scenario. Uh, there was a, a coach in England who had two fantastic players. He took over a new team, two fantastic players. You know, they were international players on his team. But he interviewed every player on the team and he asked them three questions. First question was, what are you going to do to improve yourself? Second question, what are you going to do to improve the team? And third question, what are you going to do to improve the club? The two individuals who are great individual players couldn't answer the third question. So he sacked them. Now you can imagine the outcry from the community, particularly the sports community, that's saying you need to get a result. He sacked their two best players. 
And the following year, they played in the grand final because the unity amongst the other players, they weren't just doing it for themselves and the team. It was the broader club community. So they brought the whole club along and they had the support of the whole club. Can you imagine if we did that in an employment situation where everybody was working towards a common cause? Now, it does happen and it does exist where you've got good leaders and the good leaders spend time with their people developing their people skills so they don't feel like there's no hidden agenda. There's an open and transparent communication system in the workplace. If you can establish that environment where people feel valued, it comes back to what I said right at the start, if people feel valued, they make a contribution. If they do not feel valued, they drift to the side and look for something else. So we've got to be better at trying to understand the people that are coming into the workforce and then supporting them and valuing them. Spot on, and I totally agree with you, and I hear your passion when you speak about that, and I absolutely agree with you. But we've still got um, people going to interviews where you've got four people in black suits behind a table with the chair over there for the other person. These people can't get to say who they are and be who they are because it's such a fearful situation. So what advice are you going to give to employers about chilling out and providing a space where people can comfortably express themselves. What's your thoughts on that? If we are conducting a coaching session, if we're conducting a counselling session, what do we do? We create an environment where there's no barriers between people, comfortable chairs to sit down and relax. Good eye contact. There's so many things that could be learned by employers, but just doing an introduction to coaching course, for example, that shows them just how to develop rapport. What's the first thing we teach people in coach in coaching? Develop rapport. There is no further discussion to be had if you can't get rapport. People just switch off. So how do you develop that rapport in the first few minutes of an interview? The setup of the environment is critical. Get that bit right. Make it relaxed. Don't have four people sitting on a panel. You know that's intimidating for anybody to walk in. You got four people sitting there. Maybe two. I've even known of interviews where somebody sat at the back of the room to observe the interview. Now, how intimidating would that be for a young person to sit there with a panel up the front and somebody behind? Oh, my goodness. Let's just think about this and, and feel like you're being watched the whole time. If that's what they're doing in, in the interview, what do you expect is going to happen when they get into the workplace? So, yeah, absolutely critical um, sell that we teach people just how to conduct an appropriate interview that creates an environment that will allow you to see the person that's coming into the room, not the skill set they've got. And and our leaders really need to move with the times, is is my opinion. You're you're absolutely right that people are going to work where they are appreciated and valued and coached to be better at their what they're better. But we're still missing that in a lot of organisations. So I guess how do we make a noise about that? How do we get our our CEOs to go, I must learn these skills or I'm not going to have good employment. I think a little bit more focus on retention of, of staff. Like if you have a look at a really good in work situation, if one of the KPIs from a boss to, or from a board towards the star, uh, to a CEO who's running a business to say, well, how's your retention? What are the numbers? Because that'll tell you a lot about the organisation. If there's a high turnover of staff, it's not a good workplace. And that's costs costly. To keep training new people is costly. I think the figures used to be, and they might have changed these days, but it costs 20 times more to retrain or train someone than it does to retain them. So a little bit more effort on retaining, on valuing people. But that's got to come from the highest level. So it's okay to put a CEO on wants to make a lot of changes, but the board's got to be the responsible group to say, what are you doing for our people? 
quite often the board don't really know what's going on. It's quite quite often based on KPIs, facts, figures, and the people are getting forgotten. This is the message that we need to get out there. And I guess the how to get that out there, how to get these employees to see that it costs you three quarters of that person's wage, three quarters of a year of that person's wage when they turn over. So do boards need to be more active in this? How would you how would you go in and help a board to understand what 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 advice would you give a board? I'd put some coaches on board because they will look and focus on the people. The boards, you know, you need good people to drive businesses. You need people to understand that. But, you know, we, we use the Herman Brain Dominance Instrument to get people to understand how they think. So you can imagine if you've got a whole board, a group of board directors and all they're worried about is analysis and data and processes and policies and procedures. And if they're not thinking about strategy and they're not thinking about all of the impact of those things on your people, you, you'd be deficient. So you really need someone who can say, hang on a sec, woo. What are we doing for our people? What are we doing to really look after our people? And what's the skill set we don't have sitting around this table as a board? Maybe we need to bring someone with a focus on that. Maybe it could, you know, a life, a life coach or an employment coach, whatever you want to call them, but somebody who can help the people grow and develop. But asking those questions at the time of the strategy is so critical. What are we, how are we investing in our people? So they're giving us the KPIs. The more we invest in them, the better our KPIs will be. There's no question in my mind about that. Yeah, that's a good answer. So I guess... Um I'll come back to the people and the interview. One of the questions, and and them understanding if it's going to be a good organisation to work for, one of the things that um, the the person going for the interview needs to understand is the staff turnover. And However, if they were asked that question, it would be seen as a negative. Depends how you ask the question, I think, so, you know, to somebody to say, what do you do as an organisation in terms of personal growth and development for each individual, and what do you do for the care and welfare of your, your employees? Is, are there sessions with groups? You know, like asking those questions that indicate you are genuinely interested in working with other people, they take, take the ownership for the space and say, what do you do for professional development? Or well, we send people on, I don't know, accounting courses. Okay, that's part of it, but what do you do for personal development of growth as an individual. I can develop my skill sets. I can do that online. I can just sit at home and learn how to be an accountant or a photographer or whatever it is. But to be a better people interactor, you need to interact with people. You can't learn that online. So the questions by the people that are being interviewed, you know, often you get, are there any other questions? Yes, I'd like to know what you do in the personal development space for your employees. And then what's that space term when people start asking that question? So... I guess one of the messages out there is for employers to start looking at the criteria for employee of choice because that is about the people. I'm going to touch on mental health issues here now because many of the clients I'm seeing have been so stressed in their job working long hours and being treated like a machine it's impacting on their mental health and well-being. But we still not, we still see employers going, that's not in this year's budget. It all links back to suicide, depression. A lot of that comes from the job. What, how, where do we start, Chris? 
Well, that's what we spoke about before, retention and retraining. Why would you risk losing someone and then have to retrain someone else? So you talk about the economic impact for the business. They need to invest in the person, give them space, give them time. Understand also that some people love to work and they will take work home and they'll do the work and that's their choice. You know, there's, I struggle with this concept that we need to force onto people work-life balance. Because some people enjoy their jobs so much. I know that you've had days at work where it hasn't been going to work. You just love what you do. You wouldn't care if you work six hours or, and I know you've worked 15, 16 hour days sometimes because you've been busy. But at the end of the day, they go, oh, got all that done. That was fantastic. So I've seen you do that. So for me to turn around and say to you, Sel, you should have finished at five o'clock and go home and do something different. You would have gone home frustrated because you hadn't got done what you wanted to do in the work environment. So let's be really careful and not insist that the work-life balance looks like a particular model. Every person's model is different. Let them explore what their model is. So, you know, a high-performing person who needs four hours sleep a night, what is wrong with that? If that's what they need, let them run with it. Not, not going to work for me. I'm, <laughs> I'm going to need more time. So let's let's give them time to explore what is their best work-life balance, relationship, ratio, whatever you want to call it, um, but also get them to understand what's important in their life. So if they're working flat out and the frustration is they're not on their bike going cycling for another two hours, which is physically demanding, that's their relief. That's their, um, you know, their, their, their recovery. So if they need to do something physical. It just depends. Some people want to go for a swim. Some people just want to sit down and read a book. Some people want to go home from work and have a Chardonnay or something like that. That's okay. But it's what matters to them, not what matters to me and saying, you need to get work-life balance because I don't want to put my projection of the world onto them. I need to help them take their journey and understand what's important for them because then I can remind them that this is what you said is important, but you're not doing it. So how do we change that to make sure that you are in a good space and you are looking after yourself so you go to work happy? Or you go home happy, or you cuddle your children in a happy space. All of those things that you talked about, the flow-on effects are enormous. So let's create the environment where you are a happy person and genuinely authentic and can show care and love to each other and to your work colleagues. There's nothing wrong with saying, yeah, I love where I work and I love the people that I work with. Now, that's an important part of feeling connected and feeling valued. And there's a big message there. I, mem- I remember when I started... Um learning leadership many, many years ago, my coach said to me, make sure you know your staff's name, their partner's name, their children's name and the dog and cat's name. Always make sure that you know about their family and and understand them. Because so many bosses are so busy, they sometimes don't get the time to do that and work takes over. But I guess the message you've clearly given is everyone is unique. So would you think that that was the CEO's job or an external party's job to be that um, coach to the employees? Whose job is it? Well, the same way we talk about the individual needs to have an individual pathway, each employee needs to say, well, what works for me? Small businesses can't just keep employing people to do certain jobs. So do we upskill people that are already there? Do we teach colleagues how to look after each other? Uh, I, th- I think it's a, a very, it's a, a, how long's a piece of rope sell? If you go into a BHP or a, you know, a food chain that's got stores all around the world, you can do those sorts of things. Employ people to go and make sure you're doing training courses for people to look after. The downside of that is who does the monitoring and evaluation of the effectiveness of the program once they step out of that space? 
where's the ongoing evaluation and monitoring in the workplace done on a daily, hourly basis? Somebody gets a phone call that's devastating to say you've got a sick person, that's a sick family member who's just been rushed to hospital and we found out now they've got cancer. The workplace changes instantly. So it's no good saying, oh, we'll wait three months' time, we'll have someone to come back and you've got to talk to someone. Or, you know, these lines, most big businesses will have someone for people to call and say, look, if you need help, there's counselling available. It's a case-by-case study. What works for the employee? What, what skill sets have we got? There might be somebody in the workplace that's really great, nurtures and cares for people that can read. And this is where women have got it all over blokes. Women read other people so much better. You now, maybe it's the nurturing and the mothering in them, but they will pick up on the little things that are different about a person, whether it be the way they walk in with their head down. You know, they, they do that naturally. So in a workplace environment that, you know, I struggle with this... Um, I struggle with, well, I'll share an example. I went to a Blue Earth, uh, and this is in no way a criticism of Blue Earth, but I went to a Blue Earth seminar where they talked about the fact that on any given day there's 1.1 million people that have got mental illness or whatever. And as a sports coach, I go, if there were that many people that had a hamstring injury, every university in the country would be studying hamstring injuries for prevention. So... On one side of the coin, you've got Blue Earth going in and they, they share stories of people that are, well, look how well they've done, they've got through this. And my question is, what are we doing to help prevent it? And I know that's almost incredibly hard to answer, but that's what we've got to keep asking. What are we doing? What are the indicators that are going to give us a heads up that somebody's at risk? And we don't have to wait for them to fall in a heap and then go, how good, what a great job we did in helping them recover. That's the back end of it. You can talk about those stories all your life. But why aren't we stopping those people whose whose midpoint might not be just a depression? It could be suicide. So what are we doing in that gaps between there that lets them get to that place where they've got to go, I've got to get out of here and I've got to pull the pin? That's the space we need to work really hard at. And I know there's people out there doing a lot of work, but we've got to keep at it. We've got to keep chipping away until we can find the indicators that will help us get into that space and support people, like the cyberbullying, all those sorts of things. Boy, oh boy, we've got a problem with that. It's not going to change. People just set up false accounts and they go bullying. How do we track that? How do we monitor that? How do we teach people to be, you know what, I can just ignore that by not even looking at it. So there's some skills in terms of prevention for the individual, but there's some behaviours that we need to adjust as a society that we care more for each other instead of this bullying behaviour that we see. And it happens in the workplace. Bosses bullying others. Often it's bosses with low self-esteem and they get in there and they become assertive to push other people around. That's how they get their kicks. Yeah, when I look at those guys, it goes, I wonder what's missing in your persona. What is it about you that you're not happy with being yourself? Getting to know yourself, show your vulnerability. Because you know, people talk about we need trust in the work environment. So I say, well, just show me trust. You can't show trust. You behave in ways that create trust. You behave transparently, honestly, openly. That creates trust. So trust is something you create, but it's not something you can behave in. Whereas you can behave in a particular way that shows that you do care and that you are concerned for others, and doing all that, and being transparent and communicating well, they're the things that will help create. So we've got to be careful that we don't say, this is what it's got to look like, but we identify indicators that can help us support a person to grow and develop in the same way that ultimately we're trying to say we can help support people, we can indicate that people might have low self-esteem. So if we can start identifying that at schools with young children that have been subject to bullying, you know, parents that um, are poor parents and they haven't, you know, there are good parents and there are bad parents and I'm a school teacher. So you can tell pretty much, get a nice child in the class, you can't wait to meet the parents. 
you get the kid who's always in trouble and blaming other people, you go, yeah, I know what's happening at home for you. And that's the unfortunate part of our society. Fortunate, unfortunate, whichever way you want to look at it, we are individuals that need to be considered on an individual basis. And until we know somebody, I, I, I know you really well, and I can tell if you're having a shit day just by being around you. I don't need to talk to you, I can read that from you. I can see the joy when something's going well, but I can also see when things are really struggling. And sometimes it's a matter of, so you want a coffee? Yes, please, let's go and have a chat. And that's the benefit of having good relationships. People want, are happy to be honest with you, and if we can create that environment at the schools, that will carry on for generations to come. But it's going to take time to change that, and it's going to take time to have where we started half an hour ago to say we need to give the teachers the skills to be able to do that in the classroom. Yeah, that, that's really great, Chris. And what I'm hearing all the way through is let's go back to basic values, to good old-fashioned values. Like some um, CEOs would talk, think that we're talking fluffy stuff, but we know as business owners that you treat your staff well and they will do anything to see that business succeed. And so I guess the message you've given is clear is – know people, coach people, bring out the best in people, find out what's not okay in their life and actually care about them and do that in the workplace. So you've given some really powerful messages. Two bits of advice you'd give our listeners that you've had from your diverse career and a very diverse and successful career, Chris, two key points you'd like to end up to pass on to our listeners today. I can't tell you how many talks I've done on leadership over the last 35 years. And I think I would take back 90% of them and do them again because I used to stand in front of people and tell them what leadership was and what attributes of a good leader are. But my message now is very, very simple. To any leader, know yourself. Because if you don't know who you are as a person, how can you expect people to look at you and be led by example so when you are living an authentic life in leadership space, it's a matter of understanding who you are and being true to yourself. So that's absolutely the first message. Know yourself before you try and lead others. And if you will get people that work down the line, not up, not necessarily a management position, your really good leaders in the workplace are the authentic people that are absolutely genuine and care about others. They get their jobs done. There's no question of that, but they care. The second piece of advice I think would be try and live a life without judgment. So understand that people react and behave in certain ways because of their conditioning. So if you can genuinely live a life without judgment, you are more receptive to their different space in life. And I think it's actually a better feeling when you can look on something and think, how can I help that person get through that? Instead of looking at me and go, that's ridiculous, I can't help you. There's a reason behind that behaviour. So if you can absolutely commit to trying to live a life without judgment, you become more receptive to other things that are going on around you and other things that might be going on around that person. So when you get that, as a school teacher, you get that child that comes in with poor behaviour. It's not a matter, you're in my classroom, you need to behave in a certain way. Understand why that child is behaving in a certain way. And I'll give you a classic example of that when I was a teacher. I was teaching at a school, child came in, was caught stealing someone else's lunch. Principal caught this, and this is back in the old days, principal caught the child, well, was aware that the child had taken the lunch, punished the child. I, you know, it was a severe punishment. I can't remember exactly what it was now. Uh, and it was, the child was really made to feel very awkward at school because he'd stolen someone else's lunch. And I, he was in my class. I said, what was going on there? 
He said, oh, mum's got a new boyfriend and she locked me out in the veranda last night so I had to sleep outside and I didn't get near lunch. Had somebody asked that question of the child in the first instance, my God, how many teachers would have gone and bought him lunch? But no, we punished them because of the behaviour instead of trying to understand the behaviour. So let's, let's, if we can really commit as a community to, to live a life without judgement, that doesn't mean that people will, when they cross the line, there's consequence. It goes back to choice and consequence. We will accept you as part of our society if you behave in these ways. You choose not to do that, that's okay, there are consequences for that. But then when they are being rehabilitated, understanding who they are might help them go back into the community as a better person. Chris, I could listen to you all day. You've got some really powerful messages. Unfortunately, time's up today, but I'd like to thank you for joining Career Development Centre and hope we speak to you again soon. My absolute pleasure, Sal. If you enjoyed this podcast and you would like us to appear in your feed, please hit the subscribe button and you're also welcome to leave us a review. For more information, visit careerdevelopmentcentre.com.au.